are in 1 John 4, 7 through 10 today. You turn there in the hymnal, I mean rather the Bible or uh, your bulletin, and uh, let's pray. Your word, O Lord, is upright and all your work is done in faithfulness. You love righteousness and justice and the whole earth is full of your steadfast love. Our soul waits for you, O Lord, for you are our, our help and our shield. Our hearts are glad in you because we trust in your holy name. May your steadfast love be upon us even as we hope in you. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's holy word. 1 John 4, 7 through 10. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Amen. Praise God. You may be seated. Uh, Jerome, the, the church father, the man who translated the, the Vulgate, um, he wrote in his commentary on Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, uh, he, he speaks of a story that's kind of been handed down about the Apostle John um, toward the end of his life as he's getting older and much older, and he's working in Ephesus, and his disciples have to carry him to church, and he speaks there, but he, he can barely speak, and he, uh, Jerome records that uh, his disciples began to kind of be a little bit uh, frustrated with him, because he would simply say, little children love one another, kind of kept saying that. That's what he would say. There's a little fresh... Well, we heard that before, John. Um, and there's a little bit of that for us as disciples working through what John has to say and in what can feel like sort of the meandering, rep, repetitive logic of this aged apostle in this epistle. Um, didn't we already cover this, John? It sounds a lot like something you just said a little while ago. But perhaps John's impatient disciples, whether 2,000 years ago or now, have something to learn from him that maybe he was on to something. That maybe this is really important. That of all the commands of Jesus, this one stood out to his mind in his old age. Love one another. Love one another. That's John's exhortation here in verse 7. And we'll begin this morning by looking at the exhortation and then the grounds for his exhortation and see how uh, the support for this exhortation, love one another. First, so first, the exhortation, let us love one another. Beloved, verse 7, let us love one another. He opens again with this form of address. Beloved, my loved ones, even as I love you, let us love one another. Um, this is a call for mutual love. He includes himself in the command. Let us love one another. 
And it may strike us, this touches a little bit on the question we were dealing with sanctification this morning in Sunday school. Uh, it may strike us as a bit strange that he would have to exhort us and say, love each other. Because the point kind of we've been reiterating over and over again about love and all these forms of, of uh, expressed righteousness is that love is the inevitable fruit of the work of God in our hearts. The fruit of fellowship with God is love. So it will happen if we're in Christ. So why then this emphatic sort of call to something we already apparently have, love for one another? Just because love is, in some sense, inevitable for the Christian doesn't mean it's easy. I mean, if you've been in the church at any length of time, you know the battle of indwelling sin in yourself and in other people. No doubt you've had experiences where indwelling sin has afflicted you and made it hard to love, and no doubt you have regrets of your own. Paul has to help Titus, the pastor at Crete, um, to, to, he tells them, him to remind the people how to act with love toward one another in difficult situations. He says in chapter three, remind them to speak evil of no one. This is something we have to be reminded of, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And then jumping down a little bit farther, he says, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So we as Christians have to be reminded to express ourselves properly toward one another, even though it it is in some sense always going to be the fruit of the Spirit if we're truly Christians. In one sense, the beauty of the church is this sort of rich and complex tapestry that's formed by men and women of all streams of life, all ages, all kinds of personalities, quirks, even sin patterns that we're working to overcome, uh, skills, opinions, weaknesses, and, and all of that is beautiful and at the same time it's challenging. It makes love difficult. And this is especially pertinent in the circumstance that John is addressing here when there's schism in the church, when there's already division in the church, that... Um, Suspicion and, and uh, just fear are, are um, present in the church. It becomes especially difficult to love one another, as he's called us to here. This is a commandment in one sense we can all get behind, but we recognize the challenge. Um, and the challenge gets greater, I think. In one sense, it's easy to love one another uh, in a little group like this. But if we were in the first century... And if John were to write a letter to our church, keep in mind that the letter would not be to Trinity Reformed Church. It would be to the church at, at Grand River Valley or the church at Colorado, right? That makes it even more difficult. Love one another. There, the, the whole schism question becomes very real when we recognize that. Beloved, love, let us love one another. Uh, love is kind of all the rage. It's very popular. Um, who's not on board with love? But there is a lot of confusion about what, what love is. And we should pause for a moment and just consider that word, love. And it helps to think about what, 
love is not. First, love is not permissiveness or blind acceptance. I just want you to be who you really are deep down inside, to express your inner desires. You don't hear John, the, the apostle of love, doing this in his epistle. He draws stark, hard, fast lines. If you believe this and you act this way, you're a child of God. And if you believe that and act that way, you're a child of the devil. Well, that's love as well. So love is not blind permissiveness. Love is also not merely affection or infatuation. Um, Warm and fuzzies rise and fall in our hearts. But love is something that persists. Love is constant. John's reverberating exhortation throughout this book is abide, 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 persist, continue, persevere. So he calls us to love in action grounded in knowledge. Uh, And so love is more than feelings. I want to add, and I think it's important to add, that affection and feelings are a part of love. They're appropriate component parts of love. We should be affectionate toward one another, toward our families in, 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 the, in the church. Paul says to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. That's affection. You're very dear to be affectionately desirous of you. We should want that in the church. We should have affectionate feelings for one another, such that we, we desire, yes, to share a common confession in the gospel, but also that we desire to share our lives with one another, to be in one another's lives. That is a part of love. John helps us also to define love in First John. He's talked about love a couple of times in the book, which helps us to um, define positively what he means when he uses the word love in uh, chapter 2, verse 9 and following. He says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother in the, abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness is blinded his eyes. So this passage helps us understand what John means by love because he contrasts it against hate. And when we went through that section, we learned... Um, that hate, biblically, is defined more broadly than just a, a, a feeling of disdain towards somebody else. Again, love is more than a feeling. Hate is more than a feeling. It involves action. Hate is actually, in biblically, more related to rejection than it is to a feeling of disdain. And so this makes sense in the context of First John because what's going on, people are rejecting Christ rejecting the body of Christ, that they went out from us because they were not of us. This is hatred. So, from John's point of view, love, in contrast to hatred, 
is this constancy, this consistency, stick-to-itiveness, abiding with Christ and his people. Love is commitment. Whatever happens, I'm staying here. Another way that John helps us understand what he means by love is in chapter 3, verse 16 and following. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By example, by looking to Jesus, we see that love is a life-giving. It gives of its own life for the life of another, whether that's literally dying for somebody else or just giving up our own liveliness in a sense, our own, whether it's our goods, our time, our energy, we give it away so that others may have more life. It's a self-sacrificial action. So love is not just an emotion, it's a decisive action of self-sacrifice for the sake of another. So when he calls for love here, John is calling for more than positive vibes or goodwill. Um, He's calling for costly, self-sacrificial, long-term, committed action for the sake of the people of God. Beloved, let us love one another. That's the exhortation. One of my pet peeves is that uh, people talk about love like it is the gospel. Uh, just love each other. Just just love God and love. There's a song on the radio, Christian radio. Love God and love people. That, like that's all we need. So, okay, <laughs> just keep the first and second greatest commandments. That's all you have to do. Like the whole sum of the law, just do that. The, the love is law. The command to love is law. And in fact, it is the good news of the gospel that ultimately enables us to begin to live out the commandments of Christ in real if imperfect ways. So we need to turn to the gospel. We need to turn to the grounding for this command to love. We don't hear John saying, well, y'all need to love better and you all stink at it. No, he has a grounding here for a gospel grounding. You want to love better? Feed the root of love. Consider the foundation of, of love, of the love of God. Because God is the ultimate foundation of love. So we'll look at that now. The grounds of the exhortation to love. I divided it into uh, three sections. The grounds for the exhortation to uh, mutual love. And the first is love's present ground. And that is that the common source of life, spiritual life and love is the same. Spiritual life and love has one common source in God himself. That's love's present grounding. 
Verse 7, beloved, let us love one another for, so here's the grounds, the reason for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So our spiritual life that we have in Christ and this action we call love share a common source. Love is from God and we are born of God. Both of those things come from the same place. Uh, John Stott says, For the loveless Christian to profess to know God and to have been born of God is like claiming to be intimate with a foreigner whose language we cannot speak, or to have been born of parents whom we do not in any way resemble. It is to fail to manifest the nature of him whom we claim as our father, or born of God, and our friend, to know God. So John here functionally destroys the modern paradigm that fallen man is born with an inner capacity to love rightly, to have rightly oriented affections. All we need to do is tap into inner, our inner goodness and stop all this hate. A natural man, I believe, is born with the capacity to love because he's born in the image of God. But it's a tarnished image by sin and by the fall. Uh, unbelieving parents actually love their children. Uh, unbelieving soldiers actually fall on grenades for their comrades. Right? That's self-sacrificial love. That comes from the image of God. He's the source of it. But we make a grave error if we think that love begins somehow in our own heart. John says, love is from God. He's the source. He even goes a step further to say that God is love in verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. One of the most familiar biblical phrases the world over, God is love. So God is not just a, a factory of love or a fountain of love, or a machine that produces this product called love, or God is not um, simply the most loving being in the world, that, that love is some sort of universal standard that God adheres to as well, but just perfectly. God is love in his very essence. A few common errors we can make when we talk about this concept, God is love. First, is that we have to understand that it's not reversible. Love is not God. Any form of, of affection or love is, n- is not God. And we do. We, we like to, in our day, worship or adore love in and itself, of itself as God or a God. So it's not reverse, a reversible equation. Um, secondly, God is love, but God is not only love. God is also holy, he's just, he's life, he's light. God is many things, including love. Also, we need to remember that, thirdly, that God is not the sum of his parts. Um, God is not a recipe of like a dash of love, uh, one part holiness, one part life, one part light, mix it together and and bake at 350 and then pull out the divine souffle. This is God is not a recipe. 
God is his attributes. This is what's called the doctrine of the simplicity of God. That doesn't mean that God is really easy to understand. That's not what the doctrine means. or It doesn't mean that God is simple-minded, but that he's not a bunch of component parts. The Westminster Confession says he is without parts. He is love and his, he is holy and his holiness is love and his love is holy. His justice is love. His graciousness is love. Everything about God is God. The doctrine of simplicity racks my brain all the time. So it's, it's difficult to get your head around, but it's important because we don't want to divide out God's attributes and say, well, God, God, is love and he acts justly. No, he is just. He is love. God is a package deal. He's love in his very essence. And this really strikes at the heart of what John has been talking about. If we think back again to the beginning of the book, what did John say in chapter 1? We're writing to you so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with God and with his son, Jesus Christ. So by the grace of the gospel, we are being incorporated into uh, what I've been calling the divine fellowship. We begin not to share in, in godness, but we share in the fellowship, the communion of God. A few weeks ago, we talked in Sunday school about uh, the practicality of the doctrine of the Trinity. And this is one of those elements of the practical, everyday elements of the Trinity. And conceptually, it kind of blows our minds, but practically, God is love because God is triune. Because in his very nature, he has the interpersonal capacity to give and to receive love. When John says we're brought into that fellowship, that's an amazing thing that we're brought into that communion. So the ground of our love toward one another is this this divine love, this fellowship we've brought in, been brought into. The very essence and character of God. We as Christians have come to know the love of God in a beautiful and unique way because we know God who is love. our spiritual life that we have in God and this thing we call love, they share a common source in God. So beloved, love one another for this reason, that you know God who is love. Now the fact that God is love is one thing. He could be that without us. Coming to know that and to partake in in his love is a whole nother issue. He could be love in the heavens for eons and we'd never know about it unless he made it known to us. Um, And thankfully for us, God's love is manifested to us in many ways um, in creation. But the place where his love truly became known and knowable and able to be experienced is, of course, in his entrance into history as the person of Jesus Christ. 
The incarnation moved love from something merely observable like the beauty of the stars to something experientially accessible when he took on flesh for us. So that's uh, mutual love's second ground here is that this what love's historic ground that God sent his son, his historic ground that he sent his son in time and history for us. In verse 9, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. I think on one level, love uh, is the thing that human beings are striving to know and experience. Um, It's a universal human need to know love, to be loved, to give love. People chase after all kinds of things because we believe that they are some, in some way expressions of divine love. Or, or we throw ourselves into insufficient substitutes for divine love that are themselves designed to be good uh, expressions or f- reflections of divine love but can never stand in for the real thing. We may pursue instead intimacy or re- relationships or uh, some people pursue sort of like transcendental experiences obtained through drugs or meditation. This experience that oh, I'm a part of some this unified whole. Or uh, other religions claim to have revelation from God, or or may, maybe it's just simply communing with nature, or maybe it is a form of love, uh, an adoration or affection for humanity that is in and of itself. Good, but but that's not the highest possible ideal. Whatever it is, we pursue this concept of love and divine love, sometimes at the expense of the real thing. But there's one grand expression of love that defines love itself. And it has the power to actually bring us into love, into real love with God. That God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might have life. That's how he showed us love. That is love. On the cross, it was a public event. It's seen and known broadly in the world. And yet, notice, he says, notice where John says the love and this act of Christ is revealed. It says in the ESV, among us. That's, that's where he showed it. Among us or in us. <coughs> That God's love is made known in his people. Such that we as Christians, we uniquely know the love of God and are able to display the love of God in the universe. Jesus says in John 17, 26, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love which you, with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. I hope you can see the, the power of what John is saying here, especially if we consider the sort of heretical context in which he's writing the proto-Gnostics who believe that you have to achieve higher and higher planes of, of something, illumination, enlightenment, um, that you're always having to strive after that, just try to get to the next Level And John says here in verse 9, 
He has made known love by sending his only begotten son into the world in a singular historical event. And he sent him to us to show love among us that we might live through him who is love itself. So he grounds love, mutual love between one another in this historic event of him sending his sons. Beloved, for this reason, let us love one another. The third and the final ground for mutual love, um, he continues to express God's own initiation as the revelation of love. So the third here, love's eternal ground. So we've seen the the uh, present ground, the historic ground, now the eternal ground that God has placed his love on us. God has placed his love on us. In verse 10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. As we observe the the world's fascination with um, love as a concept, we may find ourselves as Christians in the position of Inigo Montoya. You keep on using that word, but I, I don't think it means what you think it means. And the reason we find ourselves in that position is because we as Christians have a, a unique vantage on the beautiful vista of this concept of love that no one else in the world has. We know what love is. But it's important that we understand for our own humility, how did we come to see that vista? It's not by climbing higher and higher mountains on our own strength of, or our own illumination or enlightenment, but we see because God has opened our blind eyes to see. He says, the love of God was made manifest among us. What did we have to do with that? Nothing. He says here, it's not that we're love. We, we love God. Instead, we know what love is because he loved us. He placed his love on us. And that's why he sent his son for us. It's important to get that order right. He placed his love on us. And he sent his son for us. Ephesians 1 says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. It's also very much like Deuteronomy 7 when God's telling the people why he chose them. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, God says, um, or Moses says, The Lord has chosen the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. From the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So God does not choose us as his people for our admirable qualities. Thankfully. 
In fact, instead, he chose us and he decided to engage us while we were enemies with him. God is love. Another passage says God is a consuming fire. This brings us back to that doctrine, the difficult doctrine of simplicity, the simplicity of God. We can't say, well, God uses wrath when he needs to, but he is love. No, he is love, and he is a consuming fire at the same time. And nowhere is this more obvious than in the cross, where the wrath that was due us for our sins was poured out in full measure on Jesus for love. Wrath and love dispensed at the exact same time. For love toward us, he placed love on us before the foundation of the world. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So at the cross, love and justice were satisfied. So, beloved, we know love in a way that the world cannot fathom. Because we know God who is love. For this reason, love one another. Amen.